something that, that comes to mind, I've talked to enough friends in ministry over time, in ministries, and when I say friends in ministry, I'm going to mean friends who are professional Christians, right, the ones who really get it. I've talked to enough of them that they often feel a little aimless. Now, this might actually happen in any industry, in any job, where you have a job description, everyone knows this, you have your job description, and then you have what you do. And if you're lucky, you get like 40% similarity between those two things. Often, what you do is about 150% of what your description says. And so you just take on other tasks as it happens, just like that little extra helping during Thanksgiving where you're like, well, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I don't think I've had that much. And you just kinda, Then all of a sudden, all these things are going on. But when it comes down to, if you were to ask the question, and this is my, the question I sometimes ask my friends, what is it you do? What is your, like, how, how, does, how does your role here help this place, help this church that you're at or whatever? And sometimes people get frustrated because they don't know. They don't know. They go, well, I just, ugh, I, I just I'm here and I show up and I do things and I help when I can help. And I'm kind of like, I just kind of do whatever is needed, whenever it's needed. You're like, that's great. That's like most, most people. But I find that little bit of frustration can often get clarified in, in a job or in life or in family or just in church serving if somebody can look at you in the eyes and go, here's what I want from you. Here's what I hope for for you. Here is, here is what I long for. And that would be so helpful, wouldn't it? It would be so helpful if we had those those ideas from people. We'll talk about these over the coming two weeks, this week and next. But so helpful if, if somebody just looks and they just say, be they big or simple things. I, I would love for you to, to go home and demonstrate love to your spouse. Serve them in some way. Find a way to serve them and let me know. Because that becomes like, oh, okay, well, I can do that, right? I had this whole idea of all these things I was failing at. But if it's like go home and, and do the dishes because that would help, I can do that. Find some way so somebody can kind of specify that. Uh, for those of you in the room who are young, and I know we have a lot of kids in the room, students in the room, something that is so important for people who are young is to pursue good friendships. Make good friends, lifelong friends who love you and care about you and are interested in your growth in the Lord. I like the Ben Rector song, Old Friends. I'm a Ben Rector fan, but that's because he kind of writes like everybody who's our age, and I mean me and Ben, we're buddies, right? Not really. But he goes, you know, there's nothing like old friends because you can't make old friends. You can't meet somebody and become old friends with them. And so even if you try, you're always reaching back. And all of you probably have them, people that you grew up with, went to school with. The funeral court and I were at about a month and a half ago. His childhood friend from third grade spoke. These people are in their 50s. And like I, I, have, I was like, I don't know how many people can, can call their third grade friend and say, well, you know, how you doing? Or then the spouse call and go, well, you speak at my husband's funeral. I want you to pursue good friendships, lasting friendships. I want you to get a good night's sleep. Like, those are all helpful things. And you go, oh, okay. When you get to hear what somebody wants for you, it matters. That becomes all the more important. That clarity becomes all the more important the, mo the more important the person is. So if a random person walks up to you on the street and says, I want you to get a good night's sleep, you'll go, 
thanks, thanks, I, thanks, I guess. Uh, but if your physician says, listen, you're not sleeping enough, you need to sleep more, you go, well, I might need to take that into, into consideration. And so also with the, the intensity or the authority or the seriousness of the relationship, you wear that a little differently. What a father says to his son is different than what a teacher says to his son, which is different than what a coach says to his son, which is different than what a stranger says to my son. Right? Like, like that, they all are different, and they hit differently. A dad who says to his kid, you're crazy. That cuts a little deeper, a little more deeply than just the friend who goes, you're crazy. Same words, different intensity. And as I think about that in our lives in Christ, isn't it great that the Lord has given us John 17? Because in John 17, which some call the high priestly prayer, Tim started it last week, we get to hear Jesus' heart for his followers. We get, we get to actually, we get, we get to get into the room where it happened and hear what he's telling his heavenly father he wants to see happen. He begins by praying for himself, his relationship with his father, that he may be glorified. He moves into today's passage where he's praying for his disciples, but really it's also a prayer for us. Most of what you see in this prayer is applicable to the one today because we too are sent ones into the world. And then next week, as he ends, he prays for those who believe through the ministry of his disciples. So Jesus is praying Hear me, he's praying with you in mind. He's praying with this gathering in mind. He's praying with the future of his church in mind. And so today, John 7, 6, uh, 17, 6 through 19, we get to hear what Jesus wants as his disciples are sent into the world. There are two main requests, and so I'll give them to you now. We can get into the passage in a moment, give them to you now. Uh, the first request is that the Father would protect the disciples protect them. The second request is that the Father would sanctify the disciples as they're sent. So there's protection and there's sanctification. Those are the two requests Jesus gives to his fathers for his 11. We have the, re the reference of the 12, right? I've kept all of them except the guy who I wasn't supposed to keep so that the scripture might be fulfilled. That would be Judas. And so protection, sanctification, those are the requests Jesus makes for the 11 I believe those same requests are made for us. And what I want you to hear is that Jesus cares so much for his disciples that he prays for them. You really can determine the, the strength or the seriousness of a relationship based upon the prayers that person prays. In fact, we were just here at 10 o'clock. We pray uh, for the service, for what's going on. And it is not uncommon, be it today or last week or the week before, for parents to have requests for their kids. Pray for my kids. Pray for my focus. Pray for this relationship. Pray for that. It's, all, it's always there. Why? Because that relationship is an important relationship. Jesus is praying to his father for his spiritual descendants, his disciples, those who come after him to fulfill the mission that he is to give them as they are sent out into the world. And it shows us his heart for the disciples to protect and to sanctify. 
we actually start without the request. I know that's a weird way to start. I've already given you two requests. But the first few verses, 6 through the first part of 11, have no request in them. There's just this kind of long opening about how the disciples are uniquely connected to God. That's what we get to see. The unique connection that disciples have with God is right there in verses 6 through 11 or 11a. So let's look at this. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, the fathers, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. You may be asking in this moment, what does it mean to keep his word? We'll get to that because you go, well, they clearly weren't, weren't perfect. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I'm glorified in them, and I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. That's all preface material, but it is so important to recognize even the way Jesus speaks about how his disciples relate to him. Three things I want you to see here. First, they belong to God by God's choice. They belong to God by God's choice. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And this is the beautiful thing. Now, this isn't in the Gospel of John. But we know, as we look at the life of Jesus, that Jesus prays for his disciples and even prays before selecting his disciples. That he comes down and he selects and calls. Why? Because Jesus and the Father are one. They operate as one. One will, one heart, one desire. There aren't three wills in God. We've spoken about that. There is one will in God. And so the Father has given the Son, the disciples, and the Son has said, yes, I have kept them. They were yours, and you gave them to me. They kept your word. They belong to God by God's choice. There's something beautiful when you see adoption, where a family says to children that that we're not theirs, we want you. We want you. In our family. We want you here. We want you with us. We want you under our cover. We want you under our protection. We want you near us. We want to care for you, love you, support you, nurture you, raise you, and send you. We want you. There's something beautiful in that. We see that all the way. Remember in the intro how the beginning of John, John 1, 1 through 14, helps us see all of what John is doing? And remember how John says, for all who believed... He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of blood and the will of man, but of the will of God. That's who we are. Born by the will of God, not the will of man. The Father gives the Son, his disciples, and the Son looks and goes, "I've, I've kept them. They were yours. So they belong to God by God's choice. If you're in Christ today, that was God's choice. And here's the thing, because I know we can think this way about ourselves. We can think of ourselves as unloved, unworthy, undesirable, but the fact that God the Father chose you demonstrates that that is not the case. Yes, your sin mars you. It separates you. But God provided the way through his son Jesus, and he has 
brought you through the sacrifice of his son Jesus into the family. It is a lie to think that God doesn't want you, that God doesn't care for you, that God is not interested in you, that your desires and your burdens and your struggles and your anxieties are not God's to be concerned about. Why? Because you're his. I remember having a conversation with my kids one time, and, and it was about a year ago, and, and they had admitted something to me, which uh, was a very benign thing to admit, a desire. It was a desire. And, and, and after we had a conversation about it, that, that the conversation became, I really didn't want to tell you that because I was afraid of how you might respond. And I'm sure if you have kids or even if you're just in youth ministry, if people tell you things and you go, of course I want you to tell me that. Of course, of course I want to know that. Don't ever be afraid to tell me how you're feeling. Don't ever be afraid to tell me what you're thinking. Don't ever be afraid to tell me what you're worried about, what you're scared about. I want, I want to know those things. Why? In this instance, because I'm your dad. I'm your dad. I don't want you to be afraid of our relationship. I don't want you to be concerned about it. And that's the great thing to see in our life in Christ is that we belong to the Lord fully. Fully transformed, new, and dwelt now by his spirit. Fully belong. We aren't second class in Christ. So he speaks about that. What is the unique way they belong? They belong to God by God's choice. Second unique thing that they have is that they have God's word. Disciples have God's word. You see that in verse 6. They have kept your word. You see that in verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. His word is something the disciples have possession of. They have it uniquely. Does everybody in the world, can anybody who has a translation of the scriptures in their language, can anybody read it? Yes. Anybody can read it. The word of God does not return void, so we have confidence that if somebody reads it, the spirit might work, the spirit might move. But at the same time, Jesus uniquely expresses the word to the disciples. As we see, the ministry of the Holy Spirit impresses those things upon the disciples, things they didn't even understand in the Gospel of John. They begin to understand later as the spirit, as he makes himself, his desires and his heart more clear. For the disciples. I go, oh, that and that and that. I mean, it's really what it becomes. Like, you'll see, remember that John goes, we didn't know what Jesus meant back when that happened, but now we do. Now we do. And it really is a hint at when the Spirit came, the Spirit illuminated our minds and hearts as to what the Scriptures had, had said, and we understood it. I don't think we realize. I, I often don't. Not to give you less credit. I doubt you do either. Right? You're probably better than I am at it, but I bet we don't often realize what we have in God's word. We say this a lot here. God is knowable. His desires can be known. His heart for you can be known. The way to be in a right relationship with him can be known. The way to handle when you mess that relationship up is known. The way to care for your neighbor, your brother, your sister, your church family member is known. We have that. 
Now we recognize that even though the disciples were confused about some things of the Lord, when Jesus says, they've kept your word in verse 6, that what he means there is, they have embraced me as yours. They've embraced me as yours. Do they continue to learn? Yeah. Do they continue to grow? Are they continue to be sanctified after Jesus ascends and the Spirit comes? Do they continue to do ministry? Yes. Is Peter still rebuked by Paul later on in church life? Yes. It all still happens. But they have understood who Jesus is. They have seen him. And except for Judas, they have embraced him. With all of their confusion, with all of their cloudiness, with all their misunderstanding. And this is what the good news is for us. We've spoken about this too. Is that if you're confused about who Jesus is, but you know that he died for your sins, you know he is Lord, you're aware of your need and that you can't save yourself. Like, I don't have to give you 45 points of doctrine. And go, hey, let's learn it as we go. That's what I'm doing, right? However many decades later. I'm still going, what, what can I learn? How can I grow? What can I understand? And my knowledge of God, by God's grace, continues to grow. As we've talked before, and the knowledge of my own sinfulness and ugliness and all the things that I thought I did right that I don't, that also become, become more aware of that. But what is Jesus saying there? They understood you. They understood me as coming from you. They saw that. Thirdly, something about the unique relationship. They are able, they are able to glorify God. That's unique about the disciple. Verse 10, all mine are yours, all yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. As they manifest Christ, his heart, his character, as they fulfill that witness, as they are sent out, he is, Jesus is glorified in them. Now hear me here, a, a believer, somebody in Christ is able to glorify God in a way an unbeliever cannot. We are able to declare, to speak, to be in union with him, to delight in it, to enjoy it, to speak of it. Use the, the, the word we use when we preach, to exult in it. It's the only time I get to use that a few times a year, to exult in this truth. We get that. We're united to God by God's choice. We have God's word. We can glorify God. Jesus, before he even begins a request, just begins to speak about the way his disciples are related to him and to the Father. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture. And you see in this, Lest we always forget that as God chooses, we also act. We talk about this, that God's action does not negate man's action, that God's action does not mean that we have no responsibility. You see how God gave, the Father gave Jesus these disciples, verse 6. Jesus gives the word, and then what? They have received the word, verse 8. And have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believed you sent me. And so, while I won't say this is a 50-50 partnership, I think that's the wrong way to view it. God brings the disciple into the right relationship. 
The disciple receives what God has given. But if you actually listen to Tim Keller talk about election, I love the way he talks about election. He goes, election does not remove anybody's responsibility. It reveals their need for a savior. Election means that God shows people their need of him. And they can't see their need. They have to make their need, their need has to be made known passively, right? I become aware of my need. That's God's gracious work. And as I see my need that God has revealed, where do I go? I run to Jesus. I run to Jesus. I embrace Jesus. Because I have nowhere else to go. I have no one else who can fix the problem that I now know that I have. Very often we try to run to goofy things that don't work for us. Run to Jesus. I've given them your word. They've received your word. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. Again, that shows the unique relationship that they have. Uniquely related. We should delight in that. You are not ordinary in Christ. You belong to him by his choice. You have his word. And you can glorify him. Christ is glorified in you. Now he gets to his requests. Remember how we talked about them? Request number one, protection. And request number two, sanctification. Or to be set apart, to be different. This all comes underneath the umbrella of the fact that Jesus is sending his disciples into the world. Because he is sending his disciples into the world, he has desires for them. And that first desire is protection. Look at this, second half of verse 11. And Jesus doesn't say this a lot, Holy Father. The reason he'll say Holy Father is because he's about to speak about sanctification, sanctify them in truth, and the Father is the one who is able to do that. But Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you, have, you take them out of the world, but that they keep the, uh, you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So the first request we see of Jesus for the disciples in this is their protection as they go into the world. Now, how does he define protection? remaining in God's name. It's a weird request. Like if my kids go to school and they're like, oh, I'm a googer. That doesn't get them very far. Doesn't get them anywhere. Maybe in trouble. Doesn't get them far, much farther than that. And so protect them. Keep them in your name. Preserve them. Hold on to them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one. That's an interesting request. And how does it work? 
How does the Father keep the disciples in his name? It was not, but, but a few weeks ago as we spoke about the, the name of the Lord, ask whatever in my name and it will be given to you. And that came out of the idea of abiding and as you remain with the Lord, you are able to understand his heart and your requests are aligned with God. And so they align with his will, his purposes, and his ways. You remain in God's name and in God's authority. Keep them in your name. Now remember just a couple chapters ago, John 15, he speaks of abiding. These two things linked together, right? To stay near to the Lord. Keep them near to you in your name, in your authority. Why? That they may be one even as we are one. And this is great. He actually uses the relationship between the Father and the Son to develop the relationship between the disciples. We see that again next week. Now, I can't do that up, right? I can't pray that from like the ground up and go, Jesus, I hope, Father, may, may my church be one as Courtney and I are one. Why? I don't have that kind of authority, nor do Courtney and I have that kind of relationship, as great as our marriage is. It doesn't mean anything for me to try and bring this relationship upward. It is the Lord bringing that relationship down for us. So he goes, may your disciples, the ones you have given me, may they be one, remain in your name, so that they may be one as I are one. And in what ways are we one? We'll talk more about that next week, but I'll say it very specifically here. In will and in desire. They may long for the same things. That They may pursue the same kind of mission. We'll look more specifically at that next week as we see how he prays for us and our unity and how we operate together. But we'll start to look more specifically next week at the way that the Father and the Son operate. Just through the Gospel of John. What does Jesus say about the mission he's on and what he's doing? Because that becomes the template for how he wants his disciples to operate. Why can he do that? Because the relationship between the Father and the Son becomes the way in which the authority by which we are supposed to operate as disciples. Keep them in your name even as we are one. He says, and remember we talked about how this is a transition, I was with them and I kept them in your name which you've given me. I've guarded them, he's taught them, he's protected them, he's preserved them, he's been near to them. He has always been, lest us not forget, that Jesus is always instructing his disciples. Far more than we have any access to in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the disciples are getting a front row seat to misunderstanding Jesus for a while, right? They get a little confused, but they do understand him. As the Spirit comes, remember the Pentecost speech Peter gives? All of a sudden, he's connecting dots that no one had connected. He's seeing things that no one had seen, and what is the difference? The difference is the arrival of the Spirit. And Peter the coward becomes Peter the preacher. And he stands firm and he communicates what is going on, what God is doing, and the day that has come, and how people need to respond. He wants his disciples to be together on that. Protection is remaining in God's name. Protection means remaining in God's word. Staying in his truth. 
verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. So Jesus is leaving, but he said, I've given them your word. I've given them your word. So protect them by holding on to the word. You cannot, as much as I love you guys, and I'm sure you're all very smart, you will not be able to endure well in life or in ministry with an anemic approach to God's word. You won't be able to do it with just devotional emails that you get in hopes that they root you long enough to get you over to Sunday. It takes both being together, praying together, being in God's word together. This is why we'll talk about the reading plan in D groups and community groups. Not because we just want to see lots more groups, lots more things. That'd be great. Join a group, whatever. Um, like have 100 more people in 100 more groups. Whatever we need to do is fine. But they're all mechanisms. They're all ways to gather people around God's word, to speak of what he's doing, to at least have to consider it one, two, three, four, or five more times in a given week, to continue to ponder it, because that's going to be the source by which you live out this life in the world, your understanding of God as revealed in his word. It means remaining in God's name, remaining in God's word, but here's how it comes. There's like, I'll use the word condition, but the scenario by which this all comes is here. Look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So going backwards... You see that Jesus links our relationship to the world in the same way that he links his relationship to the world. You will not be able to find your identity as a disciple outside of your identity in Christ. It comes through understanding who he is. And so Jesus goes, I'm not of the world. These disciples are not of the world. And then you go back to verse 15 and he says, and I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. That is a prayer that I would think makes, it can make us uncomfortable. Because there are many of us, many disciples today, who want to escape from the world. Who want to act like the world isn't really there. Who want, and I'm not even saying, like, I, well, movies or music, whatever, I get it. Like, we could talk about any specific expression. But larger than that, Jesus prays specifically, hear me, Jesus prays specifically that you remain in the world but you don't live like the world, but you don't look like the world, and that you are kept from the evil one. This is actually how the Lord's Prayer ends. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That tag that we like in the song, not there. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. It feels good. Prayers need endings. But if you turn to it right now in the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to look at that prayer. It's not going to include those lines. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is not a prayer we need when we're with Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth. That is a prayer we need now in this earth. 
And that is a prayer that Jesus prays for us now. It is important to realize as a disciple that the protection that comes from the Father, even the provision of the word that we have that we can abide and remain in, comes as we are sent into the world. Why are we sent into the world? What do you think, John? I'm just kidding. I'm not going to make you answer that. That would be like, you might fall over dead. If I, please don't ever make me talk. Why do we need this? Remember, Jesus shows he wants unity for his disciples in the same way the Father and the Son are unified. He wants the disciples to recognize that they're sent into the world in the same way that he was sent into the world. Jesus was sent to seek and save that which was lost. He came to die. The disciple cannot die for the sins of the world. What can the disciple do? Go and declare the way the world can have their sins forgiven. Point the world to a risen Lord. Let them know about him and his word. And here's the thing that you already see. The world will hate them. The world's not going to embrace that message without a divine work of God. But that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't still pray it. This is why I believe so strongly every member at Genesis should have people in their lives that they know, not that they're guessing about, that they know don't know the Lord. That they're praying would come to know the Lord and that they're asking God would use them to do it. I was talking to Courtney yesterday. I don't know. We'll say yesterday. They all blur together. You know how holidays go. I'm like, I don't know what day it is. You're like, yeah, I got here. And I have these little reminders for myself because it's so easy. It is so easy to spend your life around churchy people. This happens often the longer that you exist in church life. And I've had Christians say this to me. I don't have any non-Christian friends. I've had times in my life where I've said that. I don't have any, I don't have any friends around believers. You know what? I'll just like, I understand the world will hate us. But that you have no relationship or that I would have no relationship with an unbeliever. That's not something to boast about. That's not something that we should be proud about. Why? Because as we hear the prayer of Jesus, he says rather specifically, the world's going to hate them, but I'm not asking you to remove them from the world, just protect them in the world. I'm sending them into this world. If we don't recognize that a unique part of the disciples' identity is one who is sent into this world, we are missing out. Now, how many, how many unbelievers should I know? Well, take your age, multiply it by a factor of, like, I don't have that. I don't have the math equation to figure out how many people in your life who don't know the Lord you should know. But I can say this, people of the world, people who don't know the Lord, they're not sent. They're not sent to declare this message. How are they going to know it? Unless the ones who have received it continue in the mission of the one who saved them and continue to do the work of the one who saved them. And you go, well, I don't know if I want to do that. Like, I, I, I don't know if I want the world to know me like that or recognize that I'm a Christian. What if they hate me? You're like, what if they hate you? Prayer answered. I don't, like, 
And that's kind of what he says is going to happen. Prayer answered, like that, that's, that we're, actually, we're actually doing the things that Jesus said would happen to those who follow him. We don't need to play it safe. What are you waiting for? Some magic opportunity that God's going to give you to share? Like, well, I'm just going to keep waiting. It's been 45 years. I'm just waiting for that one time to share, just share the message, but I'm just going to still wait. Now I'm dead. Like, that, that won't work. Now, you got a guy like Rock. Love you, Rock. Ready? Love the man. He'll just go places. And, I mean, this is how I imagine it goes in my head. I know this isn't actually how it goes, but this is how I imagine it. Hey, how are you doing? I'm Rock. Oh, I'm, you know, Hans. Hans, how are you doing? I'm hungry. You know who the bread of life is? Like, that's how I imagine how quickly you just move in. Uh, yeah, like, like that's, yeah, yeah, Blaine knows. Blaine sees it. You know, like, like, if you want to talk to a guy who has no concern about how the world would view him, but just goes, this is what's true. Just look at it. A man like Rock is an example of that. Here's what Scripture says. I don't need to convince you of it. I'm going to let the Lord convince you of it. I don't need to try and teach you or tell you that it's more powerful. I'm going to let the Lord do that work. But he's somebody who views himself, recognizes the commission that Jesus gave to his disciples. Matthew 28, Acts 1-8, like Jesus says these things, sent into the world. And as you abide in God's word, and you live empowered by God's spirit, we should expect, and I will even say look for, look for opportunities to speak. Thanksgiving, I don't know what your conversations revolved around. It didn't take long for us to revolve around the condition of the market, right? Everyone has less money at the end of this year than they began the year with, more than likely. Uh, we, if you're retired, you need our prayers. Uh, so that, what also happens as Thanksgiving festivities, as everyone ages and the average age of the festivity gets older and you stop adding children in, you talk about your ailments, so we all talk about the parts of our bodies that aren't working right. Um, we all have them. I have them. I'm sure you have them. We talk about the things we love. We talk about the food we like. We talk about all of those things. And it's funny because if you're interested in something, don't you look for opportunities to talk about it? If, there's, if you have a hobby, something really, really that you just love, I mean, you're like looking for an opportunity. It's funny. So I have this uh, cousin. I won't, I won't name him, uh, but his name's Zach. And... And it was, he was talking to his wife on the way to Thanksgiving, and he said, I really hope, because Zach's like the crypto guy in our family for whatever reason. Every family seems to have a crypto guy now. Um, and I think he got a little disappointed because he prepped his wife like, man, I really hope nobody asked me about FTX or crypto while we're at Thanksgiving. And no one did. It wasn't even on our mind. Didn't even care. And so then, like, his wife had to drop a hint like, hey, Zach's little, like, hey, so we spent like 30 minutes, like, tell us what you want to tell us. Because he was looking for opportunities to talk about it, and he couldn't find one, so he had to elbow it in there. I'm telling you guys, if you look for opportunities and pray for them and remain in God's word, and you're interacting with people who don't know the Lord, and you're looking for opportunities to demonstrate or declare Christ's love to them, it will be there. They will be there. Something supernatural, something otherworldly. 
be there. I was meeting with a friend recently, and I was talking about some of the really weird things that have happened over the past year. Where you just kind of follow a hunch on something, and then that turns out to be like, oh, oh, God was preparing me to have that conversation. Didn't even know. Just wanted to see an old friend. And all of a sudden, it's like, and here's everything. Right, if you're looking and you're seeking. Because what did Jesus do? Seek. Seek. Light shines in darkness. Mike, I haven't yelled yet, have I? Yeah, that's right. Mike goes, you going to yell at us today? No, no, I love you guys. Sent into the world so you must be protected. That protection can only come by God. Secondly, of his prayers. Jesus wants his disciples to be set apart in his truth. These are the last three verses. So you see another request. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. People would say he's kind of doing the work of a prophet. He's not like making himself holy because he already is, but he recognizes that he is set apart for a specific purpose and he's living that purpose out. So he is doing this that they also may be set apart. Again, the pattern is as the father to the son relates, so the disciples should relate. As the disciples to the son relate, so the disciples should do. Right? We are using God as our understanding of how we are to operate in this world. And you see a lot in John of, as this is the case, so that should be the case. As that is the case, so this should be the case. And so he wants his disciples to be sanctified in truth, but then he doesn't leave that confusing. He says, your word is truth. Now, when you see the word, very often we're going to go right to Bible. I understand why, but let's first begin with the message of the gospel because we're talking about people who didn't have the Bible. And since we're talking about people who didn't have the Bible, we can't expect them in this moment to know the book of Revelation was coming or the book of Galatians or 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, whatever. We can't expect that they'd be like, oh, I'm just waiting for the canonization to come in several centuries and then I will be good. And so the primary understanding would be the word. Who is the word? What does John say? Yeah, it's like the Sunday school answer. I'm only going to give you really easy questions if I'm going to ask them in this setting. Keep them in your word. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. It begins with the message of salvation. Remaining and delighting in that work. Because it is that work which reveals sins and motivation of heart, who we are, and also that work which provides the way for us to be made right with God. And so we're going to start and we see that, just like in Hebrews where it says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to cut through everything, chop arms off, just like bam, right? Like that's what it can do. It first begins with the gospel message. That message that slices hearts. Go back to the book of Acts, chapter 2. When they heard Peter's message, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Why? Because they were hearing the message of salvation. They were hearing the good news that saves them. That's what cuts 
That's what transforms. And so when he says, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth, it begins with understanding who they are as disciples, saved by him, the work that is, they're on the doorstep of this happening, this beginning. Jesus is praying about that transition. I've been with them, but I'm coming back to you, and so you keep them safe. As time goes on and the Spirit indwells the disciples and we have the richness of the Old and the New Testaments for us and that reveals for us God's heart and God's will and God's ways, we delight in the Scriptures and they continue to point us where? Primarily to our need of that Savior, but they give us, they saturate our minds and our hearts with truth. And as we live that out, what happens, right? We are set apart, sanctified, living differently, operating differently in this world. Now, this is one of the things we talk about in our class, is that we talk about the word holiness and how the word is comparative. What does that mean? You know what comparative means. What does it mean that holiness is comparative? It needs something to be looked at, right? If, if, if this is holy, why is that not holy? And so God is always holy. Jesus prays that his disciples would be sanctified or set apart in his truth, for his word is truth. He wants them to be set apart in how they desire and how they live and how they operate and how they worship differently from the world. One of my favorite, I believe this is Acts chapter 19, is when the, the city of Ephesus like repents and they all start giving away, like they all start getting rid of their books and their idols. And you know who's mad? The idol makers. They're pretty annoyed because that's a business. Creating, crafting silver images and things like that. And so, hey, the silversmith is like, hold on. If all these people start getting rid of all these things, we've lost our income. But what do you see there? You see people recognizing the gospel message, starting to operate in a different way. The world sees it and goes, whoa, this isn't the same. As the Lord prays this for us and we abide in his word, it does change us. We do live differently and we love differently and we serve differently and we speak differently, empowered by his spirit. And it is transformative. And it's good news. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. If you look at the first request about protection, it comes not that they're kept from the world, but that they avoid the evil one, kept from the evil one in the world. As you look at his prayer for sanctification, it comes as they're sent into the world. And so Jesus has the context in both his prayer for protection and his prayer for being set apart as because they are in this world. They haven't come to me yet. This hasn't happened yet. And so he longs for his disciples to live differently. As I look at this, sometimes I ask myself the question, was Jesus' prayer answered? I mean, if anybody's prayers answered, it should be Jesus, right? Shouldn't he get his prayers answered? Like, bam! Because he 
He lives in perfect union with his Father. If there's one person who's going to get this prayer answered, it's Jesus. And yet very often, don't we look like the world and we love like the world and we kind of blend in with the world? Doesn't that sometimes happen? So did Jesus do something wrong? Did he pray something wrong? Did he miss it? <clears throat> Absolutely not. Something funny happens when you hear somebody's heart for you is you see it more. Like anybody ever bought a car or want to buy a car and then every car on the road is that car? Man, I didn't know, I didn't know this many Honda Odysseys existed. You're like, well, they do. Because you start seeing it, right? Because you're looking for it. So when you hear Christ's heart for you, what begins to happen? The Spirit does work and you go, man, I should abide in his word more. I should long for his word more. I need to, I need to pray those things true. I need to invest in that relationship. Not so that you make Jesus' prayer come to pass. You don't have that authority. But what the Spirit begins to do in those moments is stir in us. And we go, man, look at his heart. How many of you are still affected, don't raise your hand, by something your father or your mother or your grandfather or your grandmother said to you, something they'd love to see happen. Something they spoke to you about who you'd be or what would happen or what would go on. And that becomes a way that you want to live. This is Christ's heart for his disciples. We'll get into more next week. And the ultimate fulfillment that comes in the new heaven and the new earth when his disciples are one in will, are one in purpose, surrounded by his word, but that does not mean we stop now or just punt to the future. But we pray, as Jesus did, that we would, as a church family, manifest those prayers in our lives and as a faith family. So let me pray that for us now.